Well, good evening. Good to see everybody. Uh, man, it's been such a good week. Uh, we're thankful for Brother McComas and his wife and uh, the blessing they've been to our church in uh, these days. We thank the Lord for what he's going to do tonight. Let's open in a word of prayer. I'm going to ask Brother Ken Cheryl if we will open our service in prayer. Stop. 
people said, Amen. Won't you stand with us? We're going to sing number 170, Down at the Cross, the first and the last. <clears throat> worship tonight with our giving. Uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing over the offering. Again, every uh, dime tonight goes to our guest speaker, and so please give generously and be a blessing to him. Let's pray together tonight. Brother Matt, if you'll lead us in prayer.
Good evening. Um, when you go through uh, tragedy, you know, you look at everything uh, differently. And uh, you look at music. I, I look at music differently. And um, uh, there are some songs that I have found that I, I can't really sing and, and be honest and sincere about them. But I have looked and looked and looked for a song for those people in church. Uh, and I think there's some, some here tonight that I'm looking at. Uh, we talked about last night. Uh, you've been through some things in your life that have shaken you, but you're still here. You're still in church. doesn't mean that you haven't had anything bad happen to you, but you're still here. I wanted a worship song for those folks. The, the, you know, we, we, we say things like, well... Somebody will post something. Uh, somebody was in a car wreck, and then we put them on the prayer chain, and they came home. Everything went well. God is good. But you know, for every person that has come home from a car wreck, I know a lot of good Christian people that died in car wrecks. But the reality is, and we can go on, COVID, some people, you know, made it through. and some. The reality is that God is good whatever happens. And that's sometimes difficult to, uh, to accept. And so I, I wanted to find a praise and worship song for those folks. Maybe your, uh, your marriage didn't end with a miraculous uh, saving. It maybe ended in divorce, maybe through no fault of your own. Um, but you're still in church, still serving the Lord, even maybe even through tears. And uh, when I first heard this song, Joseph Habedank wrote it, and I said, that's my song, and uh, I wanted to record it. I want to do that for you. If I've described you tonight, I want you to listen to the words. God is good 
y'all stand with us again.
John chapter 6, we come to the close of these days, appreciate the opportunity, Beth and I get to be here for the first time, so we feel like we've made some new friends, we do appreciate you, 
appreciate the ministry of this church down through the years, and uh, I have not really said anything about our story or where we're, well, I told our story Sunday morning, but as far as we were born, raised, pastored in Northeast Ohio, moved 10 years ago to Nashville. We were all excited when we moved to Nashville, came to work for the, to the, for the denomination and the denominational officer in home missions because we thought we were moving to the south. And can I tell you that Nashville, Tennessee is not the south. Let me tell you what Nashville is. Nashville is a bunch of people from all over the world and none of them know how to drive. That's what Nashville is. But now, uh, almost now five years ago, we moved and uh, took the position with Free Will Baptist Family Ministries and we are now in East Tennessee, in the mountains of East Tennessee and just, just really over a few mountains from here, not, not too terribly far, a couple hours away. And uh, Free Will Baptist Family Ministries, of course the information is out there on the table. Uh, we are a multifaceted ministry. We are the largest ministry in the Free Will Baptist denomination as far as employees and budget. Uh, we, uh, we take care of young people. We have four children's homes and a full foster care program. Three children's homes in Arkansas, one there in East Tennessee that started 84 years ago, and a full foster care program. So we take care of about 125 kids on any given day. Uh, we take care of the elderly. We have two assisted living uh, uh, facilities, one in, uh, over in Virginia and one there in East Tennessee. So we take care of about 110 to 115 uh, senior citizens. We have a crisis pregnancy center where we help save the lives of the unborn. We have a, 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 a single mother uh, maternity home that just opened right next to the Hope Center there in Greenville. We have a 200-acre camp, the Oaks, that is there again at the foot of the mountains. And so we've got a lot going on. Right now we have applied for to renew a license we had years ago to foster to have our foster ministry come to the state of North Carolina. And so you may be hearing more about that as time goes, and we also just got approved to foster in the state of Ohio. So we are expanding. Uh, we are also looking uh, with uh, Brother Pat Hall and the Cape Fear Free Will Baptist Church here in North Carolina in Wilmington. Uh, to, we're looking at uh, partnering with them for an adult drug rehab facility. So we've got a lot of things going on. And we uh, appreciate your prayers about all of that. Uh, so the music's back there. I can't make any guarantees about my music. Everything I've sung this week is on is back there, either on flash drive, USB drive, or CD. I cannot make any guarantees that you'll like the music, but if you take my picture that's on the front of the CD, put it in your garden, the squirrels will bring back the corn they stole last year. That is my guarantee on the music. And then we also have a flyer on a trip next January and February to Israel. We're going to the Holy Land. Uh, Dr. Danny and Carolyn Dwyer, my wife and I, are hosting a trip to Israel. And all that information is back there. And it's uh, just opened it up and it's beginning to fill up. So we'd love to have you uh, come with us. John chapter 6. Appreciate again the opportunity to be here. Again, I appreciate your pastor and his family. And I appreciate uh, your love for them and your support of them down through these last few years and everything that has taken place in their family. We, we certainly do appreciate you. And we certainly have enjoyed uh, getting to be with you uh, this week. I'm a little 
I'm a little troubled. We lost the banjo player tonight, but uh, I, I see his dad back here, so I, I think we're okay. We're okay? Okay. Uh, I wasn't going to say anything tonight, but uh, I promise. But uh, let's give this band another good round of applause. I'm telling you, you got a great, great music. And your pastor has pipes. I mean, he can sing now. Let's not, let's not fool, let's not just beat around the bush. I mean, that's good. Uh, it's a familiar story we're going to close out with tonight. In John chapter 6, in verse 1, it says, After these things Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. We do have my PowerPoint. Okay, all right, I just want, I don't, I don't necessarily need it for the scripture, but I definitely need it later. So, and Jesus went up into a mountain and there he sat with his disciples and the Passover, a feast of the Jews was nigh. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company come unto him, he saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred pennyworth of bread is not sufficient for them, that every one of them may take a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There is a lad here which hath five barley loaves and two small fishes, but what are they among so many? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed to the Disciples and the disciples to them that were set down, and likewise of the fishes as much as they would. And when they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Therefore they gathered them together and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. What I have just read to you, the miracle that Jesus performed here that I have read in your presence tonight is the only miracle besides the resurrection of our Lord and Savior that is found in all four gospel accounts. I believe we can make a good argument that it may be the best known of his miracles as uh, every Sunday school teacher down through the 50s and 60s in America made it famous on every flannel grab board in every Sunday school class in America. If you don't know what a flannel grab board is, you probably have never seen Hee Haw either. Go ahead and Google it later. I believe that you really could probably preach an entire revival series, a sermon series on just the different aspects of this story. There's the hungry crowd. There's the worried disciple. There's the little boy and his little lunch. There's the organization of the crowd that Jesus does, and then there is the leftovers, enough for every one of the disciples to take home a basket, each one. But there is one detail in this story that is only found here in John's account, and that is when Jesus asks Philip a question. 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, pay very close attention in the Word of God when God asks a question because when God asks a question, it is never because He doesn't already know the answer. Matter of fact, it would be a great Bible study for you sometime to study all of the questions of God in the Word of God. Adam, that's the first one, where art thou? you telling me that the God who just created Adam and the, the earth and the moon and the sun and the stars, uh, you telling me that he didn't know where Adam was at? He knew exactly where Adam was at. He was trying to get Adam to figure out where he was at. Jacob, what is thy name? Woman, where are thine accusers? Don't have time to preach that, but it's a good study. And what I, when God asks a question, I compare it to this. If a parent is trying to help their child with their math homework, and I know today they probably use an iPad or something, but has there anybody here remembers something called flashcards? If you sit down in front of your child with a flashcard and you ask your child what is 2 plus 2, you're not asking that because you don't know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. You are trying to help them learn something. That's what Jesus is doing here when he asks Philip the question. Where are we going to go to buy bread enough to feed this crowd? Well, of course, he knew what the answer was. He knew that there was no place that they could go uh, to at this point and in this place. They were out in the Timbuktu in the middle of nowhere. There wasn't any place to go to buy food for that number of people. Besides, they were free will Baptists. They were broke. They didn't have any money, so there was no way they could have bought it anyway. What Jesus is doing by laying out this question, he is laying out the hopelessness of this situation. He is setting this situation up for a God moment. And how many know that God likes to work when nothing else will work? But you don't have to take my word for it. This isn't just Evangelist McComas's speculation tonight on what Jesus is doing here. We know exactly what Jesus was doing because it's right there in the text that we have read tonight. When in verse 6 it says, after Jesus asked the question to Philip, where are we going to go to buy enough food? Verse 6 says, and this he said to prove or to test him. Why? Because he, that's Jesus himself, already knew I said he already knew. I said he already knew what he's fixing to do. Picture it. You ought to think when you come to church, don't miss this. Take a look in your mind's eye. On that day, there's a noisy crowd. There's crying babies. There's grumpy husbands. You say, how do you know they were grumpy husbands? Because they were hungry. How many know that men get grumpy when they get hungry? Amen. There's worried wives. The disciples are fussing and feuding and fretting, planning and scheming, trying to figure out something to do. They've already done a map quest and the closest Bojangles 100 miles away and it's already done closed. The last snack has been eaten a long time ago. The last little Debbie's long gone. The little boy, there's a little boy in the crowd with a little lunch, but at this point, he's nothing but a nameless face in the crowd. As you can see, you can see the tension starting to mount. You can see the stress in the faces as you look across that crowd. But if you look very carefully, there is one face 
that doesn't have a furrowed brow, that is cool and calm and collected as a cucumber, and that would be the face of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Why? Because he already knows what he's getting ready to do. I don't know about you, but especially after the last couple of years that we have faced in this uh, country with COVID and all the other things and now with all the uncertainty that we have, uh, there's a big war going on if you haven't paid attention. Russia and Ukraine and China's blowing balloons all over our country, you know, and we're shooting them down and all kinds of other shenanigans. Aren't you glad tonight in an uncertain world, inflation, you know, Eggs are $6 a dozen, and I mean, they're becoming a, you know, people are robbing people for eggs, for Pete's sakes. Aren't you glad in the world that we live in, in an uncertain world that we live in, politically, morally, fiscally, financially, and spiritually, I'm glad that we do not serve a God who is the victim of happenstance or fate. He doesn't have to read tea leaves to figure out what the future is. He doesn't have to go down to the Chinese restaurant and crack open a fortune cookie. He doesn't have to look in the paper at his horoscope. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. And he already knows what he's going to do. That's the title of the message tonight. And if you haven't noticed yet, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I like to hammer home one thing. If I can get you tonight, I hope last night you went home. I hope something went, I don't hope something went wrong, but if something went wrong, did I hope you said, well, it's bad. But it's not as bad as it seems. Tonight, the title of this message is, He Already Knows. That's what it says. He already knows what he's going to do. I've got good news. Point number one, if you're going through a test tonight, in your test, he already knows what he's going to do. I think tonight my mind goes back to Genesis chapter 22. There in Genesis chapter 22, God told Abraham to take his son. Oh, not just his son, but his only son. Not just his only son, but the son of promise the son that Abraham has prayed for years and years all the way up, the son, Isaac, that came to him in his old age, him and, him and his wife, and God tells him to take him up to the top of Mount Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice to God. The Bible does not say that Abraham questioned God or backtalked God. All the Bible says is that very early, the next morning, Abraham gets up and he gets Isaac and he gets his men and they saddle the animals and they head to the bottom, to the foot of Mount Moriah. Can you imagine how burdened Abraham is? Can you imagine how he doesn't understand what's going on? And the Bible simply tells us that they get to the foot of Mount Moriah and Abraham looks at the fellows. He said, you stay here with the animals. And I and the lad will go yonder and worship and will come again. Now I want you to see him. I want you to see him. I want you to see them in your mind's eye as they head up Mount Moriah. Abraham and Isaac. I didn't, Isaac doesn't even have any clue what's going on. But Abraham does. Can you imagine how bad he's feeling to think that the son he's waited and prayed for, the son of promise, the son that's to make of him a great nation, not only does he know that he's going to lose him when he gets to the top of that mountain, but he's going to lose him at his own. He's being asked by God to take his son's life can you imagine all of his hopes and dreams are shattered? Nothing makes sense. On this side of the mountain, there's heartache. 
But what Abraham doesn't know is he's climbing up this side of Mount Moriah. But over on the other side of Mount Moriah, there's a ram. And that ram has woken up today and he's not having a good day. That ram, <coughs> his inner GPS is off. He is lost as a ball in tall weeds and the ram is wandering up to the top of Mount Moriah where just in a minute he's fixing to get his horns caught in a thicket. And he's going to be the answer. He's going to be the substitute to the sacrifice on Mount Moriah where thousands of years later Jesus would be the substitute. He would stand in our place in that very same mountain range but oh listen, Abraham has no idea. He's climbing up this side. He's in complete heartache. His, all of his world is shattered and falling apart. What he doesn't realize is the answer to his prayer, the answer to his problem is climbing up the other side of the mountain. Do you see it? On this side of the mountain there's gloom. But on the other side of the mountain there's glory. On this side of the mountain there's questions. But on the other side of the mountain, there's answers. On this side of the mountain, there's despair. But on the other side of the mountain, there's delight. On this side of the mountain, there's defeat. On the other side of the mountain, there's victory. On this side of the mountain, there's heartache. On the other side of the mountain, there's hope. But what I really want you to see tonight, here's Abraham on this side, and here's the answer on the other side. And I want you to know there was somebody else there that day. There was a God who sits high and he looks low and bless God he can see both sides of the mountain and if you're going through a test just like Abraham, God already knows what he's fixing to do. I said he already knows. Some of you, it's going to take a little while but that's going to set in on you and you're going to find out that's really good stuff right there. I'm glad God, when I'm going through a test, sees both sides of the mountain. And he already knows what he's going to do. Good news. I got good news tonight. Point number two. If you're going through, if you find yourself in a fiery trial tonight, I want you to know that in your trial, God, guess what? You want to guess what the rest of it is? I hope you can complete this by the time this is over. You should by now. In your trial, God already knows what he's going to do. I think... My mind goes back to Daniel chapter 3. In the book of Daniel, you know the story of the children of Israel have been taken into Babylonian captivity. Children have been ripped from their parents. Families have been separated. Homes have been destroyed. They've been taken from their home. They've been taken. Even their identity has been taken from. You know, when the devil, when he comes for us, he wants to take it all. I've got on my mind tonight three boys. Their names are Hananiah. Mishael, and Azariah. Now, I heard somebody finish it. Did you finish it, sir? Go to the head of the class. Because most people, they never heard of those names. We know them. That's their God-given Jewish names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But I tell you how good the devil is at destroying our identity. Just maybe a handful know those names, but I bet you know their heathen names, the ones Nebuchadnezzar gave them when they got over to Babylon. He renamed them Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I don't know if it's because it goes better in a song, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I, I don't know. But I, I know that when I talk about them, I call them by their God-given names. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. By the way, the devil tried to take your identity too. You get in a good revival service, the devil will bring up your past 
and remind you and tell you, well, you're nothing but a hypocrite, you're no Christian. If those people knew everything about you, they wouldn't even let you in this building. Can I tell you, the devil's a liar, and uh, he's a thief, and he wants to destroy us. But I'm telling you, Christ came that we might have life and might have it more abundantly. Okay, time in. That was free. But listen, here's Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they're out there. You remember the story. Nebuchadnezzar's got that big gold image out there in the wilderness, out there in the plain. And everybody gets out there. He says, okay, we got the band playing. Once the music starts, everybody got to bow down to that image. The music played, and everybody did except three people. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Nebuchadnezzar calls for him. He's not happy.
If you're going through a storm tonight, here's the good news. In your tempest, in your storm, guess what? God already knows what he's going to do. My mind goes back to Mark chapter 4. Jesus and the disciples, Jesus leads the disciples down to that boat. He puts the disciples on the boat, and then Jesus said this, let us go to the other side. Can I tell you that if we have a Bible promise from the Lord that we're going to the other side, and by the way, how many know when we got on the old ship of Zion, he said, I'll take you to the other side. Hey, you can rest on that promise. He didn't say what the weather report was going to look like. He didn't say how stormy. He didn't say what we were going to look like when we got there. But you can rest that the captain of the ship knows the way, and he is going to take you to the other side. But you remember, a great storm came up. I'm talking about it was a gully washer. I'm talking about a toad strangler. I'm talking about a storm of all storms because those guys, most of them had lived their lives on that, on the Sea of Galilee. They're professional fishermen, some of them. And they're all scared to death. The boat's taken on water. And they surf party goes out for Jesus. Remember that? Remember where they found him? Where did they find him? He's asleep in the stern in the hinder part of the ship. And then they ask God a question. Master, are you paying attention to this deal? We gonna die. Perish thou not that we perish? Remember, Jesus did not speak. He did not respond to them, did he? No, he didn't immediately. Who did he talk to? He said, hush to the winds and the waves, and the winds and the waves obey. Oh, listen, what a thought. Back years ago, uh, there was a gospel group out of Texas uh, when I was a teenager, all my heroes were gospel, were preachers and gospel singers. And I got to be good friends with one of the DJs down at our local Southern Gospel radio station. Back in those days, the group sent out their uh, single, their, their music on 45 records. We'll get that right before eight track tapes. Uh, just ask them and they play. Little black round things play the needle. And when he got done with those songs, the DJ down there, he gave me those 45. I'll never forget there was a group of sisters from Texas called the Jenkins Sisters. Sister Nella Jenkins wrote the song. Man, I wish I would have thought of this because she had a great thought about this, this, this passage of Scripture right here. Nella Jenkins wrote these words. The waters grew stormy, the clouds hung low, the sun was nearly set. But Jesus was sleeping in the boat. His eyes were closed in rest. For he did not hear the mighty roar. The tempest rolled in vain. Then his disciples uttered a cry and awoke him by calling his name. And it wasn't the waves that woke our Lord up from his sleep that day. But it was the cry from those nearby who were calling out his name. So if your ship is tossed about and your vessel is out of control, well, I know a captain who always hears distress signals from your soul. Well, his arm is not short that it cannot reach his eyes are not closed today. He'll throw out the lifeline and rescue you. 
Just remember to call out his name. Cause it wasn't the waves that woke my Lord up from his sleep that day. But it was the cry of those nearby who were calling out his name. That's pretty good thought, isn't it? Aren't you glad that if you're going through a tempest, if you're going through a storm, praise God, he already knows what he's going to do. Really, I think we could take the whole Bible and rename it. Sometimes the Bible, Holy Bible, he already knows what he's going to do. You remember there in the Garden of Eden, there the Adam and Eve, they had one wrong rule. Don't eat the fruit in the middle of the garden. Fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they messed that up, didn't they? And God comes down, and there he's got the devil, that old serpent. There probably he's got Adam and Eve, and he's doling out the punishment. By the way, before they did that, you remember when Adam and Eve ate of that fruit, they were ashamed because they realized that they didn't have any clothes on, and God came down and clothed them with animal skin. Do you know what had to happen before they were clothed in those animal skins? The blood of an innocent animal had to be shed for the covering of the guilty. In that moment, we had what Adrian Rogers described as a previous coming attraction. Because there, when the blood was shed, God all, how many believe he already knew? I said he already knew. He looked down through time and saw the cross. He already knew what he's going to do. And then God tells, of course, he tells Eve, you're going to have to have pain in childbirth. Adam, you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. And then he gets to the devil, and then he says, the devil, it's a pretty good day for you, old boy. He said that you have bruised this woman's seed heel. But one day, the seed of that woman right there is going to crush your head. I guarantee you there wasn't anybody in that garden that heard that that understood what he was saying. Thousands of years before the cross of Calvary and the victory over death, hell, and the grave, God already knew. He already knew what he was going to do. Oh, listen, you remember the children of Israel? We talk about God. You know, Jesus here in this story, he organized the people and had them sit down. Do you know that as the children of Israel are headed out to Canaan in the Old Testament? Do you remember that God had a very specific way that he had them organized? He had the tabernacle set up in the middle of the camp. Then there were three tribes that camped to the north of the tabernacle. Three tribes that encamped to the east of the tabernacle. Three tribes that encamped to the west. And three tribes that encamped to the south. The centerpiece of the camp, the encampment of the children of Israel, as they come to the promised land, was the tabernacle. But if you could look, if I, we could take a drone and take a picture of that encampment, I, this is what we would have. we got the picture right here. I know they've got back here. The encampment. What do you see there? Thousands of years before the cross. You see a cross there? Why do you see a cross there? I'll tell you why. You better already know the answer. Because God already. You're getting it. About 20% of you. I'm going to keep preaching until y'all get it. Somebody better speak up. God already knew what he was going to do. Oh, we go further. Let's go hundreds of years later. There's a horrible scandal down in a little town called Nazareth. There's a woman. And she's not married. She's engaged, but she hasn't gotten married yet. And she's coming up, expecting a baby. Now listen, we know the Christmas story. We know it, we sing about it and all that, but listen, do you realize what a difficult thing that was for those families? 
You remember in the Christmas story reading that Joseph was a just man, not willing to put Mary away? You know what that means? That means that Joseph, by all rights of the Levitical law, could have had Mary stoned to death. You imagine Joseph after that angel comes to him. Can you imagine going to his mom and dad? Uh, mom and dad, you're not going to believe this. Yeah, probably not. Because there ain't never been a virgin birth before or after in, in history. But the first thing the angel said to both Mary and Joseph, same thing, fear not. Don't be afraid. Don't sweat the small thing. God's got this. Why? Because it was already. All of it was in God's plan. And God already knew. I said he already knew. What he's going to do. Let's go 12 years later. 12 years old, Jesus gets to go with his parents for the first time for Passover in Jerusalem. Several days journey. They get in Jerusalem. They're in a big caravan. And they're headed back. They leave Jerusalem. They're headed back to Nazareth. A couple days into the journey, Mary looked at Joseph and said, where's Jesus? Joseph said, I thought he was with you. You had one job to take care of the greatest person in human history, and they lost Jesus. <laughs> every parent here, every mother that's ever been in a grocery store and lost your child over in the, in the cereal section knows the terror that must have been in Mary's heart. They lost Jesus. They're boogity-boogity-boogity back to Jerusalem, and they get back to Jerusalem, and they go looking for Jesus, and where did they find him? Anybody know where they found him? They found him in the temple, lost in church. Let me tell you something. That ain't the last time that Jesus has been left the church. Don't have time to preach that. Got to keep going. But let me tell you something. There's a lot of times Jesus gets left at the church house. Let's make sure that doesn't happen in this revival. Amen. But anyway, he's there in the... You remember what he's doing in the devil? He's teaching a Sunday school lesson. All the religious mockery mock. At 12 years old. Wouldn't you like to hear that Sunday school lesson? And Mary's over there. She's about to have a nervous breakdown. Ah, what are you doing? Jesus, 12 years old, calm and cool as a cucumber. And then God asked the question. Remember what he said? By the way, first words of bread in the gospel. Here it is. Know ye not? Don't you know that I must be about my father's business? And how many know he wasn't talking about Joseph? Twelve years old. And he already knew. This thing ain't on. Is it on? Oh, it's red light. The battery's going off. Do I need to repeat everything I've said so far? <laughs> That's some nervous laughter going on there. Hey, can you hear me okay back in the cheap seats? We're okay. Hey, twelve years old. Twelve years old. And he already knew. He already knew what he's going to do. There in the upper room the night before he dies, John chapter 14, Jesus has just told the disciples, I'm getting ready to go away. They don't understand. The disciples did not understand God's plan all the way through until he died on the cross. Do you know that? That week, they were going into town, and they were fighting about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They thought he was coming to set up an earthly kingdom. I mean, at the end. And he's just said, told them he's going away and somebody's going to betray him and they're all tore up. There's one calm person in the whole bunch. 
Jesus looked in John 14 and said, and said Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. And Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? I'm glad Thomas was a doubter, because when he asked that question in verse 5, he threw the fastball down the plate that Jesus was taking a knock out of the park in verse 6, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And can I declare 2,000 years later without apology? I know it's not politically correct, but let me say it. Look up here, I'm easy to spot. Jesus is still the only way to heaven. He's God's plan A, and bless God, God never had a plan B. If he's not the way, there's no going. If he's not the life, there's no living. If he's not the truth, there's no knowing. Jesus is God's plan for somebody. Few hours later, he stands before Pilate. Pilate's trying to get him to. He's, he's Pilate's a politician. He's trying to get out of this. He knows Jesus doesn't deserve to die. He doesn't want to kill him. Jesus is silent before Pilate's interrogation. Finally, in frustration, Pilate said, Do you not realize that I have your life in my hand? That's when Jesus did speak up and he said, Do you not realize? You don't have any power over me unless my Father, which is in heaven, gives it to I want you to see him tonight. No gentle Jesus, meek and mild. He's bold and he's brave all the way to the end because he already knew. I said he already knew what he had to do. There he hangs on the cross between two thieves. His life's blood is flowing out of him, but yet. He still had one more convert before he died, doesn't he? Both of those guys were cursing him when the, when the day started. But old-time conviction fell on that one. And in faith, I don't know what that fellow was thinking, because everybody knows nobody survives. You don't survive a crucifixion. That one old boy reached out to Jesus in faith and said, Lord, I believe there's going to become a day. Someday, somehow, after this day, you're going to come into your kingdom. Lord, when you come into your kingdom, would you remember me? And at Jesus' answer still amazes sin-cursed men and women that come to the cross when Jesus, that old boy got a whole lot more than he bargained for when he asked that question because Jesus said, today, not someday off of the future when I come into my kingdom, today thou shalt be with me in paradise. My hero of the faith, Brother Bernard Barker, he said that was a pretty good day for that old boy. In the morning he was in sin. In the afternoon he was on the cross. By nightfall he is in glory. Because he trusted his soul to a God who already knew what he's going to do. I don't know about you, but I'm certainly glad in an uncertain world that we live in that my soul is in the hands of a God who already knows the end of this thing. I believe it's soon to wrap up. He already knows what he's going to do. If I could close this service tonight, I'd like to tell you a story. A story about this guy. If you can pick that last picture up there. That picture. That's, that's a man by the name of Paul Morphy. Paul Morphy uh, lived in 1837. He was born in 1837. That's why the picture's obviously black and white. And uh, he only lived to 47 years old. 
Now, if you look very carefully, you look very carefully, you ought to be very interested in this right there. Do you see what is beside you? That is a chessboard. Paul Morphy, the most famous thing about him was he liked quarterback, especially chess. And uh, he was very, very, very good at chess. Uh, matter of fact, at the age of 12, Paul Morphy defeated the Hungarian world chess champion. Uh, he played the six greatest chess masters in the world, and his record against them was four wins, one loss, and one draw. Oh, by the way, I left part of that story out. He is playing all six of them at the same time. Did you hear what I said? I said he was going from board to board. He was playing the six best in the world at the same time, and his record was four wins, one loss, one draw. Pretty good, huh? Mm -hmm. So you get the idea. He's a good chess player. Paul Murphy joined the uh, Confederate side of the Civil War. He was on General Beauregard's uh, staff. The story goes that General Beauregard's staff and, and his staff were invited to a Confederate sympathizer's house during the Civil War in New Orleans, Louisiana, for dinner. Great mansion. Big, fancy house with a lot of fancy, expensive paintings inside. And Paul Marbury, as he was headed down the hallway to supper, his attention was attracted, obviously, for obvious reasons, to a picture that was hanging on the wall by a German painter named Maurice Rick. And the painting depicts, you can put it up there, brother. The painting depicts the battle, the spiritual battle, for the soul of a man. The young man is sitting, you see him, he's sitting there on the right. And you could probably figure out who the leering guy in the red plumed cap is. That's the devil. The devil is playing the black pieces. That's the vices of this world. The young boy is playing the white pieces. That's the virtues of this world. The angels are looking on at attention. You can see that the devil is laughing. He is leering. The young boy is crying. The angels are crying because the devil has won the match. He has the boy's queen in check. Thus, the title of the painting, Checkmate. That night in the hallway, Paul Morphy stared at the picture until they called him to dinner. They went to dinner, and Paul Morphy came back in the hallway and stared at it and stared at it some more. Until finally, there were several very good chess players in that uh, that, that, that dinner that night, Paul Morphy declared to the dinner party, Gentlemen, I believe after careful study that the young man's position is not as dire as it first appeared. I believe that the boy's king has one more move. It's not dancing. You don't leave it there. He said, I believe that the boy's king has one more move. And they began to laugh at him. Can you imagine the arrogance of this guy? This painting's been painted for years. And all the chess experts down through time have looked at it, and he thinks he knows more than that. But he wouldn't let it go until he finally called for a chessboard. He arranged the pieces the way that they are in the painting. He took the boy's position and proceeded to whip every chess player that was there that night, proving indeed that the boy's king 
at one moment. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I come to you tonight at the close of this revival to tell you to lift up your head. Do not be discouraged. Your redemption draws nigh. It's, we're living in tough times. <clears throat> we're living in a tough world. Aren't you glad that you've entrusted our faith and our lives, our country and our homes and our church, to a God who sees the beginning from the end? It looks bad right now. It looks like Christians are unpopular and hated. It seems like it's just really bad times for us. I've got good news. The king is still on the throne. How many believe our king has one more move? He's going to step out of glory. He's not going to, it's not going to be Michael. It's not going to be uh, uh, Gabriel. It's going to be the Lord himself that's standing, and he's going to take care of it. So tonight I invite you to trust your problem, your burden, your need, your eternal soul, if you have never done that. Give your situation to a God who already knows. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for each one that's gathered here. This service. God, we come to the close of these scheduled services. And Lord, we sure want to thank you. Lord, as we think about the uncertainty, and Lord, as we think about situations that each of us are going through, and we think about uh, things that keep us up at night, and the burdens that, 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 that tear and pull at our hearts, oh, isn't it a blessing to know that you already know what you're going to do. Lord, I'm thankful for a God who sees both sides of the mountain. I'm thankful for a God that's going to be the fourth man in the fire when we go through the fire. Lord, I'm thankful that you may be asleep. It may seem like you're unattended, but you're still on the boat. We're going to the other side. God, I pray for that one that may be here tonight, and they're going through some stuff, maybe not only to you. God, I pray that they would entrust that to a God who already knows what he's going to do. Lord, they can rest in that. God, I pray for that one that may be here that's not sure that they're going to heaven. Lord, I pray that they would trust their soul to a God who knows and sees all. And God, whatever the need is in this last invitation, I pray you need it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If we stand all over the building, they sing a song of invitation. I encourage you, isn't it wonderful to know that we serve a God who sees both sides. You're on, you're on this side now. Maybe you're struggling up the rough side. I guarantee you the answer is on the way. If you're going through the fire, he's in the fire with you. He'll be where standing somewhere in the shadows. He'll be on the boat with you and he'll take you safely. Maybe you'd like to talk it over to you and I trust that you can do that. This time of
message that we have heard. God, we thank you that you already know what you're going to do. God, you're in control. And God, I just pray each day that we would choose to trust you. That we would allow you, God, to work in our lives and shape us and mold us into who you desire us to be. God, thank you tonight for the message. God, you know every need that's here. You know every need represented. That uh, the things that are on people's hearts and minds. And God, I just pray you intervene in each one, Lord, in a magnificent way. I pray, God, that you would intervene in their lives and, and touch them. God, as we close out this meeting, I just pray that, God, in the days ahead, there would be a spirit of you humility, a spirit of repentance, and Lord, a desire, Lord, to be all in. God, days are short, and God, I just pray we would do all we can to reach as many as we can with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for Brother Jim, his ministry. Thank you for his dear wife. Lord, we pray your blessings over them. We pray, God, you would protect them. Lord, keep them safe, keep them healthy. God, as they seek to do your will continue to be used of you all over the country as they minister to your church. We thank you for them. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Well, church, hasn't it been good to be here this week? And uh, amen. Give Brother Jim, Miss Beth a hand, amen. I appreciate him singing and preaching for us. Thank you, brother. Uh, you're a blessing to me and um, he certainly, Brother Jim is certainly someone I, you know, I don't know how to receive a comment like, you know, they're my heroes, but brother, I look up to you and you mean a lot to me. Um, this revival was for anyone. It was for myself. And, uh, so I appreciate you, brother. Um, Tyler's going to come up here and, and be with me a minute, but, uh, let's close in a word of prayer. Thank you for being here. Uh, we look forward to Sunday. I'll uh, please be back Sunday, 1030. Uh, as we worship together, I'm going to ask Brother Eric uh, to close us in prayer. Jim, Lord, who used the messages, Lord, to reach, really reach out to me, Father God. Just pray that we can leave this place, Lord, and we leave energized, Lord, and we come back, Lord, and we, we know that you've got it all under control, Father God. And Lord, we just pray that you lead us and guide us and protect us. We pray, Lord, that there be a soul here this week that has heard the message, Lord, and that will accept you as Savior, Lord, even after tonight, Lord. Father God, we pray for us as Christians, Lord, that we will 
leave me energized, Lord, and we'll reach the lost world and be salt and light, Lord, to change this world. Lift you up and ask you all this in Jesus' name. Amen.